We're in a series uh, called Grow. We've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark as a community, and we're uh, in the Mark chapter 4, and Jesus tells four parables, and we're spending two weeks on one big parable, the parable of the sower. Uh, and uh, last week, I had you do this, and I want you to do it again. Uh, at the top of your notes, if you wouldn't mind, just writing out what is the area or areas that you most want to see growth in. Uh, what is the area that you most want to see life change occur? Uh, where you want to see um, you, that particular area, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's with your spouse, maybe it's with your kids, maybe, maybe there's something about the way you're thinking that you want to see changed or an attitude or a words issue, stuff that comes out of your mouth. What is, uh, what is the area that you most long, deeply long to see growth in? Uh, last week, we defined growth this way, or at least Webster did, that is, uh, to spring up and to develop to maturity, to have an increasing influence, to become increasingly acceptable or attractive. Uh, there is this deep longing in every single one of us to grow. In fact, I would argue that, that the presence of our longing to grow or to become who innately we desire to be or who we were made to be actually points to a deep longing for God himself and his kingdom because his kingdom is simply life as it always was meant to be. And if we actually are growing, if we actually are in a process of, of becoming who we were made to be or, or living life as is intended to be, there's really eight areas that would emerge that would be developed. Uh, in Galatians, the Apostle Paul says it this way, but the fruit of the spirit, the, the natural byproduct of what it means to be growing, developing, is first and foremost love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That a growing person, a maturing person, specifically a person who's, who's growing in their relationship with God would have these eight characteristics just, just begin to emerge from their life. Well, then we've got to ask the question, how? How do we grow? How do we see that one area that you wrote at the top of your notes, actually, how do you experience life change there? Because I think for a lot of us, the desire to grow is true, but the answer to how to grow is somewhat feels elusive to many of us. And Jesus, in the only way that he does so brilliantly, packs this profound truth in such a simple story, and it's called a parable. A parable is just a picture with a point. It is, it is a story that relates to uh, deep significance. And he tells this parable, and we talked about it last week, the parable of the sower. Uh, that, and in this, he says, this parable is one that is the foundation for understanding how life was meant to work and to operate. It is foundational. If we miss this, then we won't get anything else. And the parable of the sower simply goes this way. Jesus tells this story of a farmer. And a farmer goes out to plant his crops, and he's got a, you know, a 
bushel or a bucket of seeds, and he's going around, and he's throwing seed. And as he's throwing seed, some lands on the hard path, and when it lands on the hard path, the birds swoop in, eat it, because it just doesn't penetrate to the soil. Uh, and then some seed that he throws around falls uh, onto um, really kind of shallow soil. He says the rocky soil. is the soil that in that day, there was uh, about, you know, six inches maybe or so of, of topsoil, and then underneath it was limestone. And so it, the plant with the, would sprout up real quickly, but then when the, the heat and the sun and the wind would come, it would just scorch it because the roots couldn't dig down deep enough to sustain life. And then he would spread more, and some landed on uh, weedy ground, and the weeds choked out the life, and it sprang up and grew, but it was never fruitful. And then it says other seed fell on good soil. And the good soil produced a crop of 30, 60, or 100. Last week, we unpacked it in a graph this way. You see it in your note because those four types of soils represent four conditions of the heart. It represents the hard heart or the unreceptive heart. The shallow heart, the rocky soil, represents the shallow heart. The weedy or thorns represents the crowded or distracted heart. And the good soil represents a receptive, responsive heart. Uh, the hindrances is the hard soil. Uh, the hindrances that Satan takes advantage. It doesn't penetrate, and so ta- Satan takes advantage of the moment, and the result is devoured. For the rocky soil, it's a shallow heart. Trials and pain comes, Jesus explains, and as a result, because there isn't roots or foundations, uh, the wither and scorch. And then there's the re- crowded heart. Distractions and worries come in and crowd and stuff crowds, Jesus says, and is choked out. And then finally, the good soil, which is the receptive, responsive heart. And what we see is no hindrances are shown and bears fruit of 30, 60 to 100 fold. And last week, he said the starting place of growth is simply this. The spiritual growth always begins with God and from, from a place of grace. And if you notice, we said this, that the sower so lavishly, he didn't just sow where he thought it would grow. He said the hard path, I'm, exp- I'm going to continually sow here in the rocky soil. And that he, he says, the minute the, you respond to him, you enter into good soil. Now, in asking this question, how do we grow? How do we begin to experience life change uh, look back up at that graph for me, with, uh, or with me for a second. What part of that do you have control or influence over? Help me out. I didn't study this part. Yeah, your heart. I, I mean, look at it. You can't control the results. Right? You can't determine whether you'll be fruitful or what kind of fruitful or any of that. As parents, we know this more readily than uh, not. Is we can control the environment. We can't control the results of how our kids will end up. Right? They're, they're going to make their own choices. You can't control the hindrances, the obstacles. You can't control whether you'll experience some sort of spiritual opposition. You can't control uh, the trials and pain. Some you can. Some of the trials and pains are because of poor choices. Many you can't. And they come in, they're external pressures. Some of the distraction worries. But what you can control, the part that you have influence over, is your heart. And here's the major point of this parable. 
This is the primary teaching what Jesus is trying to get at. Just as the condition of the soil determines the overall health and growth of a plant, so too the condition of your heart determines how you will grow. Just as the condition of the soil is going to determine whether this plant is going to be healthy, whether this plant is going to be fruitful, your heart determines, the condition of your heart determines how you're going to grow. And so the key, the key to growth is, starts or begins in your internal world, not your external life. We live in a world where everything's external and it's so much easier to focus on outward and, you know, my career and, you know what, my, uh, if I drive the right car and I have all these things and we can, it feels like we can control that. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The key to growth is found in your internal world. In fact, here's what he say. You know that thing that you wrote at the top? And like, yeah, it was, it was anger. I'd really love to grow, not in anger, but grow in that area. I'd love to see life change so I don't just snap at everything. You know what Jesus would say? Jesus would say, you don't have an anger problem, you have a heart problem. And you wrote at the top, my marriage. I really want to see my marriage. I have that relationship. And what Jesus would say is, you don't have a marriage problem, you have a heart problem. See, our tendency is to address the symptoms around us, whether it's anger, whether it's uh, an attitude issue, whether it's um, a spending issue, maybe it's that secret lust issue. And so we address all the symptoms and wonder why we never see any progress. And we get really frustrated. I'm really going to focus on my anger issue. And I just get more angry that I can't focus on my anger issue. I said, no, 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 no. It starts here. Stop, stop trying to fix symptoms and go to the source. It's all about the heart. In fact, Proverbs says it this way. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. One translation says it, for from your heart overflows the springs of life. That from your heart, everything else comes from. And I love what that word guard. Guard means this, to take special care of. Watch over with all diligence. Give careful attention to. You guard what's most valuable to you. We live in a world that teaches us and constantly points us to what's most valuable is what you drive. What's most valuable is the career and upward mobility you have. What's most valuable is looking just right. We live in a world that speaks and just hammers us that externally you have to look the part and yet internally you're dying. He says, guard your heart for from it... It's the source from which all of life flows. Now, we have such a good friend, especially my wife. 
her friend they found in the uh, early stages that the baby that she was carrying was going to have some uh, health issues. And they said, most likely this little one is going to have some special needs, going to be a Down syndrome baby. Uh, and this little one, sure enough, um, was born with, with Down syndrome. And here's what you may or may not know about babies uh, that are born with Down syndrome. Uh, the, the likelihood of heart defect in a, in a Down syndrome baby is is almost a majority, it's 40 to 60% that if you are born with Down syndrome, you'll have a, a hole in your heart. Uh, the likelihood for uh, babies who don't have Down syndrome is like, I think like 0.5% or something like that. This sweet little baby boy is told, hey, he's going to be born, but as he, after he's born, his heart is going to slowly give out on him. And what's going to have to happen in the first couple months, this little, beautiful baby boy is going to have to have his chest opened up and have heart surgery. And they did. And they watched the baby started off healthy, and slowly the heart got weaker and weaker and ended up at Stanford and got the heart surgery and a bunch of repair. And now the baby, by the way, finished the story, is doing great. Over a year old. But here's, here's the reality. Even though today we go, many of us weren't born with a heart condition, every single one of us has a heart condition. Every single one of us. So let's just start there because I think immediately when we start to talk about the conditions of the heart and we start to go a little bit below the surface, our defenses go up and we go, not me, or I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to talk about that. There's stuff that I've pushed down. And let's just start with the common place and go, we're all in the same boat. We all, every single, no one is outside of the exception. We all need to do heart work and have heart work done. And that's the point of the parable for Jesus saying, by the way, let's talk about the conditions of the heart so that you grow, so that you thrive, so that you become who you were made to be. I don't want you to suffer. I don't want you to go through life with a hole in your heart and miss out and just limp through it. I made you to thrive. I didn't make you to live and lean in and always feel like I'm never quite good enough. So if you'll take your notes and look at them, four conditions of the heart. And I trust that as we unpack this, God is going to hopefully do the gentle but necessary work in your heart to begin to reveal the areas where he wants to do the heart work on. First condition of the heart is the hard hearts. Matthew says it this way, the hard heart is one who hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it. There's a massive difference between hearing and understanding. Hearing is just taking in content. And a lot of arguments we have are hearing-based arguments because we don't seek understanding. Understanding is one where you go and you stop just hearing or listening to them, but you see that person and you go, I'm going to see life from your viewpoint and understand your perspective and why and how you would say that. A lot of times we just simply hear things, and in hearing things we are working up our own defense of how we can respond back, right? 
Okay, just me. I guess that's a, I'm the only person that does that. Uh, the symptoms of a, of a hard heart is actually, what you'll notice is a hard heart is oftentimes a hurt or wounded heart. A deep wound or hurt that has caused you to put up a protective shell or protective barrier where you've been hurt so you don't want to let anyone in and so you guard it and you put up these hard walls so that you won't get hurt again. You always have to be right. You have to have the final word. You constantly are blaming others. A natural response is if someone brings something up, you defend it or you deflect it. You either go, no, 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 that's not me, or that was them. A hard heart is a me-centric view of life. Now notice, uh, me-centrality is actually twofold. It's not just an overinflated view of yourself, which it is. And some people think way too highly of themselves. And this, I'm a superman. I'm great. I'm the best in the world. And you have some coworkers like that. And you're like, wow, they're not. And you would clearly, yeah, they're hard-hearted. God could never reach them. Yes, he can. But you think, no, he couldn't. But then the flip side of it is then a hard heart can also have this understanding, uh, that they are worthless, empty person. You ever talk to someone? I, I've had this conversation uh, that... Everything somehow revolves back to them. And then when you're talking to them and you're like, well, that, that couldn't work for me. Yeah, I, I'm too far gone. And it's this worthless, empty reality, which is not true. Henry Cloud uh, and Stuart Townsend, Henry Cloud, a clinical psychologist, wrote in his book, How People Grow, says, we have a natural tendency to think that no one understands the uniqueness of our particular situation. This tendency is based on our bent towards blaming and externalizing our problems, thereby avoiding the hard work of taking ownership and working through them. And that is a definition of a hard heart. To cultivate the soil of a hard heart is simply this. Ask for help. Ask for help. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The reason God cannot be strong for you is you refuse to be weak. See, asking for help is this declaration, this public confession that I can't. And in that confession of I can't breaks the soil of the hard heart to say I need. And your neediness for God is the beginning place of growth in your heart for a hard-hearted person. When you finally realize I'm not tough enough, I can't make it, I need help. And you ask for help. Now here's the thing about hard-heartedness. It is so hard to see in yourself. And I, I don't know, but almost nobody self-identifies as hard, being hard-hearted. So what condition are you? Hard-hearted. Nobody does that. And so it can be so tempting to overlook this and say, oh, that's not me. So let me give you some examples. This is last Friday. I was golfing with my dad, and I'm, I'm, I'm the type of golfer that goes once a year. So I'm amazing at it. 
And so and he's a very good golfer. And so as we go out and he's with a buddy, uh, I had a friend who's a golf pro teach me some techniques because I'm so bad. And, uh, and it was actually working and the ball was going straight and not far, but straight. And, uh, and so I was doing that. The first nine holes are great. And then I get back to the, the back nine and I mean, all of a sudden I'm hitting them way over here. And I mean, I mean, I don't know how a ball just goes straight down when it's already on the ground, but I can do that, you know? And I mean, it just was going everywhere. And my dad's like, hey, hey, can, can I give you a little advice? And I mean, it was just after a tee shot that was terrible and I was so angry. See, I may not be good, but I'm still competitive, you know? And, and I was just so upset. And I'm like, not now, dad. Because yeah, it's still your dad and you somehow still go back to all those natural responses. And then it's like, Ingram, heart, heart. Ooh, because that's a hard heart. Someone wants to speak in and help, and you don't want their help. Took a deep breath. I'm like, all right, Dad. Yeah, I'd love your help. Tell me. And he gives me the same advice that the golf pro did. I'm like, oh. And I took it, and all of a sudden, I was, you know, Phil Mickelson. Um, I was like, it was just a hard-hearted moment. And then, Wednesday... Wednesday, I'm preparing. Wednesday's my big prep day uh, to prepare for uh, the message for the weekend. It's kind of one of those days. And in the morning, some stuff came up. We had a whole bunch of stuff come up at the house, and things break down. And my wife's asking, hey, can, can you stick around the house? we got workers coming. And in my head, I already had my day planned and what I was going to do. I can't stick around the house. i got to get all this stuff done. And now I feel under this pressure. And, and begrudgingly, instead of honestly, I go, yeah, I can stick around the house. And so then I try to find a hideout around the house to like work when the kids are home and all this and stuff coming in and out. And it felt like an hour had gone by and I'm not accomplishing anything and Jenny's coming in and out. And I'm just like, all of a sudden I get so frustrated and so angry and so mad. And, and so on the way out, I get in this huge argument with my wife about not being able to prepare for the message. Oh, and we're arguing about the silliest things. And what it goes back to is hard heart. My, my heart. See, if I'm really honest, I have all four conditions of the soil in my own life. There's parts of my life that God's going, man, you need to ask for help. You have a hard heart in that area. You need to, you need to ask for help. And there's other conditions where it, things crowd out the voice of God. First condition of the heart is the hard heart. Cultivating the soil is asking for help. Uh, the second condition is the shallow heart. Uh, Mark says that when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Luke says it this way, that they believe for a while, but in time of, of testing, they fall away. Uh, and here's what I'd say is, in America especially, we have such a broken view of suffering. Suffering, you cannot grow without suffering, by the way. Just, just think about if you want to grow in muscle. I mean, I know this is a silly illustration, but just think about it. You have to go through suffering and pain and push that weight, and it's hard and it hurts. That's the only way that your muscle grows and develops. 
In, in the New Testament time, the saints counted it worthy and happy that they would suffer for their Savior. God forbid that we think that our Savior would suffer and die, and he is the example for what we follow, and we would not suffer at all. And yet somehow we think God's, God exists for me. God exists to make me happy. God exists so that I get everything I want, and the minute I experience pain, and the minute I experience hardship, the minute anything doesn't go my way, well, there must not be a God. I'm going to take my ball and go home. And we do that. Parents, we got to teach our kids a proper understanding or theology of suffering. Uh, Richard Foster, a deep thinker, great writer, uh, wrote this, superficiality is the curse of our age. The shallow heart are the fair weather followers. Symptoms of this is you often compare yourself externally to others around you. And so instead of going to the word of God and going, okay, what do you want to do in me and allowing him to do the deep work in you, you look around and look externally, okay, look at how they're doing, look at how they're doing. The other day or a couple weeks ago, our family was at Mount Hermon Christian Camp. My dad was up there teaching. We got to hang out a bit. It was awesome. And then I meet this guy. And he was one of those too good to be true guys. You ever met them? I mean, he was in the Marines. He's, uh, he, he was like so nice and kind. And, uh, and yet he uh, got his, he's a Navy diver. He's gotten patches in different uh, military, like in, in the Army and the Marines. He's like this incredibly driven person. So he's like a Navy diver, which is one of the elite groups, like 70% dropout rate. And he's a stud. I mean, he's built like a Greek god. He's about 6'4 and just huge, you know. I'm looking at him going, oh my goodness. And he's so nice and his kids are so well behaved. And then I come out to find that he's, 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 he serves and his time of service is in Afghanistan. And you know what he's doing in Afghanistan? Well, he's an orthopedic surgeon too. God, my gosh, how have I wasted my life? <laughs> compare, 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 compare. See, shallow hearts, we compare. We look around us and where other people are at and we either feel better about ourselves because we look and see, well, look at how far we've made it or we see them and go, we feel guilty about ourselves. We haven't made it there and God's saying, no, it's just between you and me. Symptom is we live from one experience to the next. You make feelings the basis of your decision making. We live in a culture today that says feelings is the, the source of what's reality and what's true. No, just, I, I'd encourage you, write this down. It's, a, it's an incredibly insightful phrase. Feelings lie, period. Feelings lie. We live in a day that if it feels good, do it, and feelings are what tells you what's true, Feelings lie. Feelings are a great indicator, the most lively indicator for how you are personally doing. They're just a terrible barometer of what's really true. You can feel the two things at the same time. I can feel like, oh, I want to go do this. I, I can feel like God doesn't love me and that's not true. I, I can feel... Like, huh, if it feels good, do it. So I want to do that. doesn't mean it's good for me. I, I feel like eating a thousand donuts and nothing bad's going to happen. 
No, no, you're, you're going to get fat, Ingram. Because the truth is, there's reality. Feelings lie. But we live in a world that says, how you feel is what's most important about you. And you make feeling-based decisions, and as a result, oftentimes shipwreck your life. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue, continue, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught and overflowing with thankfulness, cultivating the soil of a shallow heart. It's intentionally go below the surface. You have to intentionally. See, if I wait until I feel like going deep, I'll never go deep because I don't feel like it. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. Sometimes it takes work. And you wait till it just naturally happens. I just want it to naturally happen. You have to be intentional. Intentionally go below the surface. Let me give you a couple ways you can maybe do that. Intentionally go below the surface in conversations. We were at our dinners for eight this last week, and as we're hanging out, having fun, at one point asked the question, just a question that took us below the surface. If you could describe the last year in a single word, the last season in a single word, what one word would you use and why? What word do you hope the next season to look like? What one word would you use? Uh, we, at the baptism, we sat in a circle and everyone shared their story and why they wanted to get baptized. And it was powerful. And all of a sudden, in both of those moments, we didn't just say at surface level, we saw the soul, saw the heart, knew the person. The questions I love to ask hanging out with someone is, what are you learning right now? What's God's teaching you? In our conversation, it's got to be intentional. It doesn't just happen naturally. Think about it uh, in what you read. Intentionally go below the surface and intentionally read great books. Intentionally read some great biographies of maybe some missionaries. Read your kids great stories of what God's done. Read Christian classics, whether it's C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Read A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. J.I. Packard's Knowing God. Get some books that hurt your head and take some time. I, I then just kind of encourage you on the last one, get God's word in your heart. Just get it in your heart. Going, man, I have, I have this issue I, I just keep judging people. And then, then just start to get his word on grace in your heart and just begin to memorize it. I mean, as a kid, my dad did this for me and I did not like it. And yet now I am so thankful for it. Last week I said, you know, the last fruit of the Spirit has been a 15-year journey and it's still a journey, self-control, self-discipline, doing what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, irregardless of how you feel about it. That's what self-discipline or self-control is. And it's been a process. Well, he had me memorize all these verses on discipline as a teenager. And they've stuck with me today. They've been shaping my heart today. To cultivate the shallow heart, you have to intentionally go below the surface. Uh, This third heart is the crowded heart. The crowded heart, uh, Mark says this, here's the word, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth and desires for other things come in and choke it out, making it unfruitful. 
Luke says this way, those who hear the word, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, pleasures, and they do not mature. They don't mature. They don't progress. They don't become who they were made to be. Symptoms of a crowded or a distracted heart. Uh, I think one of the symptoms is this, is struggles, a distracted or crowded heart, struggles to trust God with your finances. See, because you have things and stuff and everything around you, and it's like mine and me, and well, I gotta have this, and I gotta have this type of car, and I gotta have this type of house. God, I can't trust you with this. And I'm not saying give here. If you don't feel comfortable giving here, but you need to give somewhere. It's for you and for your heart. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart follows. You want to see where your heart's going? Look at your time and look at your money. And it will reveal where your heart or what your heart is chasing after. See, the crowded heart says, man, I, I, I can't quite trust God with my finances. The crowded heart says never, you never have enough time, you never have enough money, you never have enough fun to do, never enough stuff, never enough pleasure. You live at this hurried, rushed pace. That's the Silicon Valley, isn't it? We wear hurried like a badge of honor. And we, we have to explain that on a vacation why we, we went on a vacation and how much work we got done on our vacation, don't we? And if you take time off work or, you know, you go home, well, I, I went home, but after I put the kids to bed, I, I worked until midnight, and I was back up at six. Uh, Dallas Willard says this, great thinker, philosopher, Christian writer, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Ortberg, in his book, Soul Keeping, a book that's deeply shaped uh, Jenny and I, we started reading this over our vacation, uh, comments on this, talking about the difference between being busy and being hurried, because busyness is a condition of the world around us, and hurried is a condition of the heart. Busyness is internal, hurry is a, con- or busyness is external, hurry is internal. He says that busy is a full schedule. Where hurried is being preoccupied, where you can't engage in a conversation, you're constantly preoccupied. Being busy, you have many activities. This is, and that's, that's where we live. But being hurried, you're unable to be fully present with the person. You ever been there? Where you got so many things going on and you're internally hurried and rushed, where you're having a conversation and you just realize you didn't hear a word they said? because you're thinking about what's happening or going on later. Being busy is an outward condition where hurried is an inner condition of the soul. Being busy is physically demanding. It's not a bad thing to put your head on the pillow at night and be tired and had a busy, full day of work. Being hurried is being spiritually drained, where you put your head on the pillow and there's this emptiness inside of you. Being busy reminds me I need God. Being hurried causes me to be unavailable to God. Hurried people have no time for God. Um, I just want to take a second, because I, when I dive into this, I think of the young men in our church and the young men in our area. I think this affects all of us, but I think it affects young men especially. I just want to talk to you because for a second, men, uh, especially single men, 
Because here's the pattern I notice, guys. A pattern I notice is that you live for the weekend. You live for how minutes you can pack in. You live for your work. And that you just find your significance in what you do and then how much you can have fun outside of that. And here's my deal, is that you might acquire stuff and acquire significance or, or, and miss out on really what was most important in times when you had the most amount of time, the most amount of flexibility. See, I hear guys tell me, oh, I'm just so busy. And I just, I laugh, and I need to say it a little bit more often. No, you're not. You're doing what you choose to do, yes, but I have three kids and work a full-time job. If you're single, you're not busy. I hate to break it to you. Now, here's the problem, is some of you are going to go through your 20s and realize you wasted some of the greatest years of your life that you could have died, given to what matters most, and you just realize, I just used it all up. And when you finally wake up, you're realizing, hey, I have three kids, I have a mortgage, I have all these sort of things. The things that I really want to, I can't. Because the season of my life dictates that I need to really invest in my family. I just challenge you. With the practice here, uh, cultivate the soil, practice generosity. Jesus tells this story, or he doesn't tell a story, in fact, uh, he has this encounter with what we know as the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, man, I've followed all these things, what do I need to do in inherit life? And and I love the line that Jesus says to him, or says in the text of Mark. It says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that. I mean, he just looked at him and loved him, and then he said something that was so incredibly hard because he loved him. He said, go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and then follow me. See, whatever is keeping you from God, he says, instead of living life like this, would you live it like this? And practicing generosity isn't just with finances, by the way. Finance is always the beginning point. It's always a starter. It just primes the pump of our heart for generosity. It reminds us that all we have and all we are is God's. But think about this. What, what would it look like to practice generosity with your time? I was just talking with young, uh, one young guy uh, uh, this last week and talking about what's more expensive is your time, not your money. You can always make more money, but you can't make more time. When you're generous with your time, you've given the most valuable thing away that you can give. What about generosity with your words? What about generosity with your presence? If you would just go, you know what? I'm just going to be generous in my presence. If you find that you're inwardly hurried and distracted, you're going to fight that and you're going, this conversation, I'm going to be present and not be thinking about the list and to-dos that I have to do along the way. And you start to catch, no, I'm going to be present. I might forget it. Oh, well, it wasn't that important. See, cultivating the soil of the crowded heart is practicing generosity. And finally, the receptive heart or the responsive heart. Others, Mark 4.20 says, Other seed like, uh, others like seed sown on the good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Matthew 13.23, But one who received the seed that fell on good soil is a man who hears the word and understands it. 
Luke says it this way, but the seed on good soil stands for those with noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. The receptive heart, symptoms of a receptive heart are those uh, when confronted with an area of growth, you listen and respond. You don't listen and react. You hear what they're saying. You take time to process it. You may even disagree with what they're saying, but you take enough time where you actually listen and you're able to respond and not just react to what they're saying. That's the sign of a receptive or responsive heart. You're more concerned with who you're becoming than what you do. It's a sign of a responsive heart. The greatest thing about you is who you become, not what you do and how much you make. The only thing you'll take into eternity with you is who you become, not what you do. And a responsive heart says, you know what? I'm gonna prioritize life around who I'm becoming and not what I'm doing. And finally, you've put into practice what God shows you in his word. You just simply put into practice. You simply go, God, okay, whatever you show me, I'll do. And that's a dangerous prayer, by the way, because he'll show you. And you just go, God, whatever you show me, whatever you show me, I'll do. If you show me this week what you want me to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it into practice. In fact, James gives us a warning about people who hear the word of God and don't do it. He says, you deceive yourself. It is so dangerous to sit in churches, and there's churches filled with people all around the country that hear the word of God and do nothing and feel like they're doing good. And James would say, no, no, no. You've deceived yourself. You've missed it. But you put into practice what God shows you. Cultivating the soil here then is don't give up. Don't give up. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. And I gotta tell you, there's times when you're in the process and it just is hard and you wanna give up. When circumstances around you are pushing in and you just want to, I'm tired of doing what's right. I'm tired. God, you you know what? You put into practice, I've done what you said and it's still hard. I'm growing tired of it. You grow weary. And you say, don't give up. I I got a word like that not too long ago uh, from my buddy Tony Cruz. And a lot of you know Tony Cruz. He used to be around here. Uh, and uh, about five months ago, he, he's like, man, I just had a dream about you. And I said, well, one, that's kind of weird. Um, but he's like, then I just felt like this word for you. And I, he said, don't give up and be prepared what God has for you. Don't give up. Be prepared for what God has for you. And I said, man, that sounds kind of ominous, actually. is <laughs> literally Galatians 6, 9 was the word. And, and if I'm really honest... April, May, and June were some of the hardest ministry season that Jenny and I have experienced. It's so hard. We've gone through transitions and leadership challenges and all kinds of stuff that, that it just was like, oh God. And his words, don't give up. Be prepared for what God has for you. And my word to you, if you're in that stage, and I just say, don't give up. 
Don't grow weary of doing good. Growth doesn't happen overnight. It is a process. And in the process, we lose sight of the end goal that he's going to make you into the likeness of the sun, that you're going to grow in your love and your joy and your peace and patience. And we lose sight of that. And so we just go, man, is it worth it? Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give in. Be prepared for what God has for you. Four conditions of the heart. Key to growth is found in your interior world, not your exterior life. The condition of your heart will determine how you grow. I want to close with a, a, a modern day parable, if you will. It's out of the book Soul Keeping by Ortberg. And uh, yeah, just let me read this to you. Why don't you sit back, kind of relax, and take this in. There once was a town high in the Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream. The stream was fed by springs that were old as the earth and as deep as the sea. The water was clear and like crystal. Children laughed and played beside it. Swans and geese swam on it. You could see the rocks and the sand and the rainbow trout that swam at the bottom of the stream. High in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as keeper of the springs. He had been hired so long ago that no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. He would travel from one spring to another in the hills, removing branches or fallen debris and leaves that might pollute the water. But his work was unseen. One year, the town council decided that they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised the old man anyway. They had roads to repair, taxes to collect, and services to offer, and giving money to an unseen stream cleaner had become a luxury they could no longer afford. So the old man left his post. High in the mountains, the springs went unintended. Twigs and branches worse and worse muddied the liquid flow. Mud and silt compacted the creek bed. Farm waste turned parts of the stream in stagnant bogs. For a time, no one uh, in the village noticed, but after a while, the water was not the same. It began to look brackish. The swans flew away to live elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent with dew, uh, that drew children to play by it. Some people in the town began to grow ill all noticed the loss of the sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the streams that fed the town. The life of the village depended on the stream, and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened, the money was found, the old man was rehired, and yet another time, and after another time, the springs were clean, the stream was pure, children once again played on its banks, illnesses were replaced by health, the swans came home, and the village came back to life. The life of the village depended on the health of the stream. And Dallas Willard, in his uh, classic Renovations of the Heart, writes this, Our soul is like the stream of water which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other area of our life. When that stream is as it should be, we are constantly refreshed and exuberant in all we do because our soul itself is then profusely rooted in the vastness of God and his kingdom, including nature and all else within us enlivened and directed by that stream. Therefore, we are in harmony with God, reality, and the rest of human nature and nature at large. Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. No one else will be the keeper of the stream of your heart but you. You and you alone. No, it's no one else's responsibility. 
No one else will do it for you. So let me just ask you this as we close. What's, what's the condition of your heart? As we just went through those areas, what are the, what's the thing that we said that you just go, man, I, I need to put this into practice, put it into writing? And what I know is when we start to talk about this, it can start to feel a little overwhelming at times, can it? And you talk about those four conditions, like, I'm all, I'm like, all the three, and I'm so messed up, and it's so hard. And this feels impossible. And God had this great reminder for me, because I feel that way too. And this week, as I was walking outside, I saw uh, something in my neighbor's driveway in the cement that just reminded me, uh, just of what we've been learning. Will you take a look at this? Here we go. That was in my neighbor's driveway. I just, I mean, literally right next door, Jeff's driveway, there's the crack of cement, and just in that one little crack, this beautiful purple flower emerged. Here's just what I'd say. God doesn't need much. God doesn't need much. It's just that response. It's just a crack in the cement, it is, and he'll begin to do the work in you. And so would you just simply respond to him and go, God, here I am. Here's where I'm at. And, and just allow, maybe if you're there, just, just, just give him what you can and let him grow the beauty and life in you. Let's pray. God, I just ask that you, you would show us clearly what you want us to do and give us the grace to step into it. God, I pray that we would be a community, a community that is imperfect but is running after you, that we see your life springing up in the areas all around us. God, we need you. We need your help. In Jesus' name.